Well, the first thing you're probably going to notice on this recording is that I am not Pastor Michael Bryant, who preached his last Sunday at Yuma First Church on June 13th, nor am I Pastor Mike Wilkerson, who begins on July 4th. I'm Katie Fuchs, ordained deacon, and I'm filling in today, Sunday, June 27th. Today's message is titled, Healthy Touch, Healing Touch, and I'll begin by sharing with you our scripture reading. The reading comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. I'm reading from the New International Version. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and took the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was twelve years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. This ends the reading. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to live in the White House? either as actually the president, or perhaps just as a member of the president's family, or even a staff person. But there's definitely a downside to this. As glorious and posh and wonderful as the White House might seem, from the very first day you enter a security bubble. It never goes away for the rest of your life. Michelle Obama spoke of this in an interview in People magazine more than a year after her husband left office. She told the interviewer, we don't have the anonymity that allows you to be in the world with normalcy. I go into restaurants, I still work out and travel, but I can't sit at a sidewalk cafe and just watch other people without it becoming a scene. 
She shared how briefly she entertained the idea of wearing a disguise, but quickly discarded it. Then somebody's going to say, what, what's Michelle doing in that wig and those glasses? So I think a disguise would only backfire. I'd be in some tabloid magazine. What's she trying to do? What's wrong with her? That's crazy. Asked what one thing she missed most about her pre-White House life, Michelle said it was driving. She no longer has the freedom to get behind the wheel and drive herself wherever she feels like going. Her Secret Service patrollers have veto power over, over such fantasies. Now, I imagine this sort of is her life now, even after leaving the White House. She's still instantly recognizable. And it doesn't just apply, as I mentioned, to the president or immediate family. I'm acquainted with somebody who has a family member who works for the White House, not even in a very visible public position. But I'm told that even her family member cannot show their face online or tell very many people what they do for a living. That security bubble of necessity is tight. When you're that well-known, so many people might want to speak with you, talk to you, try to get insider information or influence you. Commentator Carl Wilton likens this celebrity and instant recognition to that of Jesus in his days on earth. Did you ever wonder what kind of security bubble or protection Jesus had to have around him? What happened after his boat landed on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, for example, and he began walking through a large crowd who had come to see him? We're told that the disciples often served as protectors, people who screened the crowds for Jesus, or tried to keep things calm and control who saw Jesus. We know there are cases, for example, where the disciples tried to keep children away from him, or they decided who should or shouldn't come to him for healing. You can imagine some of them forming a moving wedge ahead of their master, sort of an advanced guard opening a space within which for him to walk. It's a good deal less sophisticated than Secret Service agents behind mirrored sunglasses with headsets or talking into hidden microphones. But it got the job done in the first century for Jesus. Somebody needed to run interference on him because he was on an urgent errand. There's no time to lose. That's what's happening in our story today from Mark. Jesus had just received a desperate message from Jairus, a high synagogue official. The man's 12-year-old daughter was sick, to the point of being on her deathbed. Would Jesus be able to come and heal her? Of course Jesus will. Everything we know about Jesus says he would do that for anyone. But this man, the synagogue leader, is someone of great personal influence and power. No doubt the disciples, upon seeing him approach, led him right through the crowd to speak to Jesus. He was a VIP of his day. If Jesus had had a public relations director, the Jairus visit would have been at the top of the calendar, circled in red. And why was somebody like that coming to Jesus? Because this is how rapidly Jesus is becoming famous and important in the eyes of his fellow community, especially within the religious community of the Jews. Mark tells us Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and begged Jesus to help him. This was beyond extraordinary. He was such an important man, yet he was prostrating himself before somebody else. For leader of the synagogue to do that demonstrated that Jesus was nearly without equal because of his reputation as a healer. So on that day, which was so important, Jesus was a man with a mission, hurrying through the crowds trying to get Jairus' home, you can imagine, or at least striding with purpose, perhaps the disciples calling out to make way to let him through. But the crowd was probably as relentless as ever. People had been waiting for days, weeks, who knows how long, for Jesus to happen upon the scene. 
hearing about his reputation as a miracle worker, as somebody who could answer tough questions, offer encouragement, and yes, even physically heal people. I sort of imagine the scenes you see on the red carpet at Hollywood with people crowding the ropes, or times when famous musicians have to leave concerts in a rush, like the early days when the Beatles would have to run with a crowd of people screaming after them and even trying to tear their clothes. Hopefully it wasn't that severe, but no doubt the crowd was reaching out, hands trying to reach Jesus, or just jostling in a very busy day. Well, within that rowdy crowd, there was one woman, not powerful or famous like Jairus was, but somebody who had a very personal, very sincere reason for seeking Jesus, for wanting to be healed. This woman was sick and had been so, the scripture tells us, for about 12 years. She spent all her money on every sort of doctor and nobody has been able to help her. Jesus, it seems, is her last hope. Her medical disorder affected how people treated her. Mark tells us that the woman had been suffering for a hemorrhage, or what other translations call a flow of blood, for all these years. What it means is that she had the monthly bleeding that comes to most fertile women, but not just once a month, continuous for those 12 years. It never ceased. In the Jewish faith at that time, there was a building that was a ritual bath, and during the time of that month, women of the community lived in semi-seclusion. Their physical relationship with others was restricted. They weren't allowed to touch other people because they were considered physically unclean. That included even their immediate family members and their spouse. According to the Law of Moses, following this time of month, they were able to bathe and be clean and considered to be allowed back in society and with their families again. But because of her unusual medical condition, this woman would have had to live separate from other people, from her own family and her society for this entire 12 years. She's virtually an outcast. If she had been married, it's a pretty good bet that marriage was no longer functional. If she's lucky, maybe any relations she has sent her food once in a while, and if she's not, she probably has to beg on the streets. According to sociologist and biblical scholar Bruce Molina, this would have been a great social change from where she started. The fact that she had money to spend on physicians in the first place, and multiple ones at that, indicates that she actually was a high-ranking person when this all started somebody elite with money to spend. But illness knows no rank. Illness doesn't care what's in your wallet. And that's what happened to her, was that it attacked relentlessly, continuously, until she was broke, no longer able to seek physicians who weren't able to help her anyway. She was a picture of alienation and aloneness. She wanted to be healed of her medical condition. But she also, no doubt, wanted to be reconciled with her community, to be reunited with family and friends. Yes, just to function and be among others. That morning, she goes out, probably hoping nobody will recognize her, and hides and slides through the front of the crowd. Jesus' disciples, in secret service mode, might have blocked her way had they seen her. But we're told that as this crowd goes by, as she's part of it, as they jostle around Jesus, she reaches out and touches his robe. And a miracle occurs. Mark tells us that a powerful feeling sweeps over her, and she knows immediately that she's been healed. Some say that she felt her bleeding stop immediately. But then something unexpected happens. Despite the bumping, jostling crowd, despite his hurry to get to Jairus' home, Jesus stops in his tracks. He looks around and asks, who touched my clothes? He knew that somebody had not just brushed against him accidentally, 
but touched him deliberately and that something important had happened. The disciples have no answer. Though perhaps they're trying to run interference and keep people away, people are still bumping, jostling, and plenty of people, no doubt, have touched Jesus and the disciples. Jesus isn't interested in their pat answer that any number of these people could have touched him. He's only concerned for the one who touched him on a mission with a purpose and was healed. Jesus' question is a testimony to the power of human touch. The disciples miss that point. Their puzzlement at this question shows that they think Jesus is talking about an ordinary, inconsequential bump in the crowd. But Jesus knows otherwise. Perhaps it's something about the way he was touched, that deliberate feeling of fingers pushing against him, or maybe even a solid tug at his garment. Even in a crowd, after all, can't we usually tell the difference between somebody just accidentally pushing us to when somebody reaches out with a purpose to accomplish something or trying to get our attention? I distinctly remember a time in my life when that happened. I was attending a live concert, back when those used to happen, remember, of one of my very favorite bands in the world with a friend of mine. And I remember looking around the crowd, either before the show or perhaps during it when people were laughing and really enjoying things, and then noticing a familiar face in the crowd behind me. And I turned to my friend and said, that's Quinn, the person behind us. I didn't know her personally. I just recognized her because I'd seen her online, and she actually wrote some pages about this band we were there to see in concert and maintained an online Tumblr blog about them. I always really enjoyed reading what she had to say about the band and agreed with her opinions about them, so I was excited to see even her in person and a chance to get to know her, perhaps. I said to my friend, maybe when the concert is over, I'll get a chance to go back and say hi to her. Well, the concert ended, and of course the crowd began to move around, some people trying to push to the front in hopes of a chance of meeting band members, others just collecting their things or preparing to leave. And as I was in the midst of this, making sure I had my purse on securely and that everybody was in order to leave our row, I felt a tap on my shoulder, a very deliberate tap. I turned around, and there was Quinn. She had actually gotten to me before I got to her. And although she wouldn't have reason to recognize me personally, she said she had seen my enthusiasm and engagement in the concert and recognized a fellow superfan of this band. Well, we kept in touch beyond that day, and now I've had the privilege of attending several concerts planned ahead of time with her. A new friendship formed, all out of that specific tapping that was done on my shoulder that day. Back to the touch Jesus felt in the crowd on the day that he met Jairus and met the woman who was bleeding. The touch from the woman was very significant. It was heartfelt, focused, and more than a little desperate. He cannot be on his way to heal Jairus' daughter until this human interaction has been resolved. Fearfully, the woman steps forward and identifies herself. Far from scolding her or complaining that she reached out and did this without permission, he blesses her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her daughter. We don't hear him saying this often when he's healing someone, but he's not only healing her body, he's healing all of her broken relationships. He's welcoming her into his own spiritual family. Go in peace. What blessed words for a woman who has not known the freedom of coming and going, who has not known peace for such a long time. And of course, as for the other leading character in the story, the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, we're told she does die after all at least in the eyes and minds of the family members around her. 
and perhaps this is because Jesus took too long, as far as they were concerned, stopping to speak with this other woman, hearing her story and giving a blessing. Despite family members coming and telling him that the daughter has died, he continues to Jairus' house anyway, even though people try telling him it's no use. And there at the house, after reassuring them, he indeed raises the little girl from the dead, again with a touch, taking her hand. Jesus is the child of God himself, after all, and the love of God is without limit. It's not even limited by death. Just because one person receives the gifts of God's love, in this case the woman who was bleeding, doesn't mean that that supply of love is cut off and it wasn't there for somebody else. Now Jairus' daughter could also be healed. This is a story about human touch and what a powerful force it can be for good in our lives. It was a common thing in pre-pandemic worship services for people to share greetings with one another with a physical touch. We might hug somebody that we knew well or seen every week, or somebody that we felt comfortable with and wanted to welcome. We always would shake the hands of people around us. This handshake, brief hug, or touch on the shoulder was our way of saying, you belong in this body of God. We're happy to see you in worship. In a time prior to the epidemic, these greetings extended far beyond our personal space. It was shared both with friends and strangers alike. Our caring touch was a symbol of welcome of community in Christ. Such a simple act. Such a powerful, nonverbal message. Well, there's a reason to believe that human touch is essential to human well-being, especially when we're young. Frederick the Great of Prussia was a powerful ruler of the European Enlightenment and a man of great scientific curiosity. He once conducted an unusual and later decided to be quite cruel scientific experiment in the development of human language. There was a theory then that the babbling noises that infants make when they're first beginning to speak and vocalize was related to perhaps the ancient common language of Eden, but that children lost this mother tongue as they grew and learned the language of their parents. Frederick decided to test this theory by isolating newborn orphan infants from any contact with any adults. Specially trained nurses would take care of the babies, changing their clothing and feeding them, but touch them as little as possible, not at all whenever possible, and not speak to them or expose them to language in any way. Once the children grew old enough that they would normally learn to speak, they would be brought into the presence of the other children and see if their babbling would turn out to be a language that they could understand one from another. Well, not surprisingly, the experiment was a failure. History records that not one of these children even lived beyond infancy, old enough to begin to speak, more or less. The one thing Frederick did learn from this terrible, cruel experiment was that physical touch from one human being to another is essential to life, and especially in infancy. If babies are not picked up, hugged, or caressed, they don't have a very good chance of surviving. The need of most people to feel a physical connection from time to time has certainly been highlighted with our pandemic. When social distancing and even quarantining were at their height, at their most strict, people understandably complained often of missing contact with loved ones. You often heard or saw people lamenting about not being able to hug children or grandchildren if they were in another household. And I personally knew of many people who were only able to see their loved ones through a window if they were being cared for in a home. But it wasn't just these extreme cases. We had to be careful even about the most casual touch. Many churches had to drop the handshake greeting. Do you remember those first few weeks after the pandemic, before churches closed and we were still meeting, but we couldn't greet each other with handshakes, and we were encouraged to hold up hand symbols or wave at people instead? How deliberate we had to be. 
And after the pandemic, as that's coming back, hasn't it been a joy when we felt comfortable to be able to greet one another and shake hands again? People were so impacted by that. And you don't realize how often you might not worry about casually being around a friend or acquaintance. I watched a television special the other day where a cast talked about what it was like to still continue filming their show during the pandemic, how initially they had to contrive ways to remain separate, and how amazing it was when two cast members for the first time in over a year found themselves able to sit on the same couch together. Just even sitting in proximity was that exciting to them. So it's no surprise that many of Jesus' healing stories center around physical contact. Lest we be too hasty in our praising of this reopening of being able to touch one another, I think it is important to recognize, though, that not everyone is enthusiastic about physical contact. We're not all huggers. Unfortunately, also, we know all too well, sometimes touch can be used to harm rather than to help or heal. How often do we know of somebody who is recovering from some sort of trauma that doesn't like to be touched? And that can be a natural, protective reaction. We're also discovering that we can be a neurodiverse people. Some people are just wired in such a way that psychologically, emotionally, physically, being touched can just be too intense or uncomfortable. And then, of course, after the pandemic, some are reasonably more concerned about being touched, particularly if they are somebody who would prefer to be vaccinated and they haven't been able to for one reason or another. I saw a possible way to address people's different comfort levels in a post that was on Facebook about some social events that are using color-coded bracelets handed out at the beginning of the event to help symbolize this. If somebody is wearing a green bracelet, it indicates that that person is perfectly okay with casual physical greetings, including handshakes or hugging. A yellow bracelet indicates they'd prefer just using caution, that perhaps elbow or fist bumps are okay, nothing further. And if someone is wearing a red bracelet, they are still practicing social distancing or just don't want to be physically touched and would prefer just to be greeted verbally. I don't know if we really need to implement something this formal in our worship services or congregations across the board, but I do like how it models being aware that not everybody has the same comfort level with being touched, but that if we're healthy and careful about it, it can be something that is healing or welcoming when used carefully and appropriately. Because of her unclean state and the resulting isolation, the woman who touched Jesus' robe was starved of human touch. She somehow knew that if she squeezed through that crowd and touched him, she would be blessed. And she was, in a beautiful and a life-changing way. We too can experience the healing touch of Christ, perhaps through hugging her handshakes, or in more figurative ways, through the taste and smell of communion and Jesus' presence in that to us, or receiving the blessings of God figuratively, the warmth of the sunshine on our skin, or perhaps that glow in our heart when a story particularly touches us. Likewise, we are called to share God's love in the ways that we are gifted and comfortable. It may be through the way we greet others, through the way that we make them feel welcome, through a hug or a handshake if they like, through the gifts that we share physically when we donate food or clothing to others in need, or it may be through the way that we exemplify God's love and forgiveness in the way we relate to others. However we do it, may we all be agents of God's continued healing in our community and in our world. Amen.